Hello, different church. How's it going? <laughs> it's day 800 of lockdown or whatever. Although, I don't know. I guess, are we not really in lockdown anymore? Uh, if you can go to a restaurant, maybe that doesn't count as a lockdown. Have you guys been to any restaurants yet? I've been to a couple. It's pretty weird. But also, it feels really nice to kind of do something... Um, yeah, I don't know. Things are still pretty strange. Uh, who knew that doing nothing could be so exhausting? <laughs> uh, anybody out there like me just having like really crazy weeks? Like this week was nuts. I, um, case in point, normally before I record like an intro like this, I would watch the message, um, just to make sure that I don't say anything like the opposite of what Hannah says, <laughs> but I haven't done that. So I'm going to tell you a couple things in a minute and hopefully I don't contradict her at the beginning of her message. We'll see. Who knows? We're flying by the seat of our pants. Um, but anyway, I hope you're doing okay. I'm ready to see all your faces. Um, we're starting to talk about meeting again in person, um, for services, but also for small groups. We don't have an exact date or anything, uh, and we're not in a huge hurry, <clears throat> even though I'm super ready for it to happen. We're kicking around like middle of June, end of June, beginning of July, something like that probably. Uh, and I just want to say if um, you're not ready to come back out, no pressure, no judgment, uh, and hopefully same goes for you towards us if you think we're doing things a little bit too early. That's... I understand. Uh, I just, you know, I trust and, and pray that everyone out there is doing the best they can and being as smart as they can and as safe as they can. So uh, at the end of the day, we miss you guys and we're ready to uh, have service in person again. Um, just, you know, keep your eye on our social media. We'll let you know as soon as we make any sorts of decisions. Uh, but it's coming up soon. Um, middle of June, end of June, beginning of July, <clears throat> something like that. Uh, it's probably the same time frame for small groups. I know we've been talking about them for a long time, but uh, we're starting to get our heads wrapped around um, what those are going to look like. We're probably going to have just one in Tampa and one in St. Pete. Um, the Tampa one will probably be near downtown Heights area, and the St. Pete one is going to be at the original uh, different church headquarters, Bree's house. <laughs> so if you live in St. Pete or the Tampa side of the, the water and you're not near either of those locations... That's okay. You can come if you want, but if you don't, if you don't want to, <coughs> excuse me, um, let us know, and maybe there's a couple people near you, and we could, you know, start a new small group out, you know, in Apollo Beach or I don't know wherever you guys are. Um, I don't think we have any major announcements. There's nothing going on. I've just got crazy quarantine hair. Uh, I'm tired. <laughs> uh, I love you guys. You're awesome. Uh, it would be cool if you went to diff.church on your phone. Let us know what we're doing well, what we can improve on. Uh, shoot us a prayer request. We'd love to pray for you. Um, in these uncertain times, it's important to make sure that you uh, have people thinking about you and praying for you, and we would like to do that. Also, from there, you can give. Uh, the best thing you can do for us still is become a monthly giver. Um, if that's something that you can do financially, that would be incredible. It helps us figure out what our budget is. Uh, how many musicians we can bring in whenever we open up the service again, uh, where we can send some money for service projects, all that kind of stuff. Okay, I've talked long enough. Sorry, I just missed talking to your 
beautiful faces. Um, you want to hear from Hannah? Okay, uh, clap it up. It's Hannah time. Yay! Welcome to another Sunday edition of Different Church. My name is Hannah. I am the pastor of Different Church, and I'm very excited that you have come to spend some time with us, whether you're watching this live with most of us on Sunday morning or you're watching this at a later date. We are very excited that you are here. Don't forget to join the conversation in the Facebook comments below or the YouTube comments if you're watching this at a later date. And you can also join our Slack channel um, where we have most of our news and updates. If you would like an invite to our Slack channel, you can email hello at diffchurch.com. Let's jump in, shall we? <laughs> so, today we get to catch up with our friend Paul, who is the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, and he is traveling all around the Mediterranean seaboard, visiting cities, preaching the gospel, doing what Paul does best. And so, our, when we pick up with Paul in our passage today for Max, he's actually already in Athens. But just prior to him arriving in Athens, he was in Berea and Thessalonica, which are two towns at the top of Greece. So they're up here, Athens is way down here at the bottom of Greece. He visited these towns to preach the gospel, but it became very dangerous for him. So he essentially had to run away. <laughs> he was run out of town. Now, in Thessalonica, where he visited first, the Jews in the town were, some of them, were very upset by the message that he was preaching. Of course they were. It was a very strange message that Paul was preaching, according to them. And so they caused trouble for him, and he had to leave. And he goes to Berea, which is not very far away from Thessalonica, but it's a little distance. And they were much more receptive there. So he's talking to the Bereans. They seem to be pretty receptive. But the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, <laughs> they found out that Paul had only gone to Berea, which was very not very far away. So they came over to Berea and started making trouble for him as well. So some of the believers in Berea actually had to sneak Paul out in the middle of the night and send him on his way. So they sent him all the way down to Athens, which is at the bottom of Greece. And when Paul gets to Athens, he is alone. Because the people who traveled with him down from Berea, they went back home. And his two traveling companions, Silas and Timothy, they had not arrived in Athens with him yet. So what is he doing in Athens? What does he do with all this free time while he's just alone by himself? So first he goes to the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue in Athens, to speak there and discuss. This was his normal mode of operation. Synagogue first. Remember that Paul is a Jew, so this is completely normal. Synagogue would be his home base until they became upset with him <laughs> and kicked him out. So, but then he spends all day every day, seemingly, preaching in the town square to anyone who would listen. Now, do any of you listen to people who are yelling in public spaces? I would venture to say probably not. For me, certainly not. If someone is like preaching or yelling or having any kind of message to share in a public space, I am definitely not stopping to hear what they have to say. But that we're not used to that. We're not used to that kind of mode of communication. We have other ways to communicate. But that was very normal for them. So in Paul's time, if you had a message that you wanted heard and you didn't have a platform like you weren't the governor, you didn't have some kind of large platform where people would already listen to you, you went to the town square and you said it out loud <laughs> because that's where all the people were. That's where all the, like your grocery shopping, your banking, everything happened in the town square. So that's where all the people were. So if you had something you wanted to say, you would go to the town square and say it. A side note, <laughs> if you're a gamer, you can actually see this in uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is set around the same time. It's like a hundred, couple hundred years before this X was written. 
Um, there's some NPCs, which are non-playable characters. And they're in every town, in every city, <laughs> there are NPCs in town squares in Greece and around this whole Mediterranean area. And they preach and pedal to the masses in every single place. So it, and also if you want to see what Greece and Athens specifically looked like a few hundred years before uh, Paul arrived there, Assassin's Creed is pretty historically accurate. Not in terms of the storytelling, but in terms of city layout and buildings and things like that. I actually remember playing the Assassin's Creed 2, which was set in Italy with parts of it set in Florence a long time ago. And then my husband and I actually visited Florence and it was kind of like walking the streets for the second time because I felt like I had already seen. It was so historically accurate. Um, <laughs> that was a ridiculous sidebar. <laughs> if you're a gamer, I'm sure that was interesting to you. If you're not, hey, video gaming is good for you. You can find out about Athens around the time of Paul. Anyways, Paul is in the public square, preaching to anyone who will listen to him. He's preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what Jesus accomplished by dying and being resurrected. And while he is preaching, Paul gets into a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Because of course he did. Remember, Athens is essentially... It's almost like a university town. So it's known for its school of philosophy. It was, the whole city was full of philosophers, thinkers, great minds, and all of these people were constantly discussing and examining things like the meaning of life, good, good and evil, what even is good and evil, the meaning of being human, and on and on and on. If you've ever taken a philosophy class or being even friends with someone, who knows about philosophy, you understand these existential debates that you can get into and go around and around. So this is what Athens was known for. And in Acts 17, it says that Paul got into a debate with the Epicurean philosophers and the Stoic philosophers. Now, the Epicureans were the followers of the philosopher Epicurus. <laughs> in a shocking twist, <laughs> the Epicureans followed the teachings of the philosopher Epicurus. Now he lived about 300 years BC, before Christ. So their basic philosophy was that the chief good in life was pleasure. So essentially, they were advocating living in such a way that the greatest amount of pleasure could be derived during your lifetime. You could get the greatest amount of pleasure while you were alive, but you had to do so in a moderate way so that you could avoid suffering that comes from overindulging in pleasure. So it's kind of a form of hedonism, but it's much more moderate. Um, so like to apply this in real life, an Epicurean might say that being drunk is good in moderation because you can derive pleasure from this. It can be very fun to be drunk. However, being drunk all the time was bad because then you will end up being an alcoholic, which will cause suffering in your life and you will lose all of the other things in your life that could bring you pleasure. So I hope that helps like they're very focused on pleasure and, and external things giving you pleasure, but at the same time, they're very moderate about it. So they don't want you to do one thing in excess of everything else because eventually that will cause you suffering and then you will have a hard life and that will defeat the purpose. The Epicureans also did not believe in an afterlife at all. They just believed that your soul was mortal, just like your body. And so after death, there was simply nothing. You just dissolved essentially. On the other hand, there we have the Stoics. Now the Stoics were the followers of the philosopher Stoicus. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That would be perfect though, wouldn't it? 
I'm kidding. The Stoics were not the followers of the philosopher Stoicus. There was no philosopher named Stoicus. The Stoics were the followers of the philosopher Zeno. And their way of thinking was also founded around 300 years BC. And so their basic philosophy was that the path to happiness or blessedness was found in accepting moments as they are and not allowing themselves to be controlled by anything external like desire or fear. Basically, they valued logic and reason above all else. So they're teaching that virtue is the only good for humans. Everything else, health, wealth, pleasure, anything external, it was not good or bad intrinsically. It's something for virtue to act on. So the word stoic, when we think of it now, and it relates to this as well, it, it typically refers to someone who is indifferent to emotions, indifferent to external events, whether it be pleasure or pain or grief or joy, nothing really affects them. No matter what happens externally, that person is very controlled internally. And so we have the Epicureans and the Stoics, they're at odds with each other, naturally. Um, for the Stoics, pleasure shouldn't be derived from anything external. And for the Epicureans, pleasure, especially external pleasure, is good. It should be pursued all the time. But they're both debating Paul. <laughs> they completely disagree with each other, and they're both very confused by Paul. Some of them thought that Paul was preaching nonsense. Some thought that he was talking about foreign gods that they just didn't know very much about. And they had never heard of Jesus or the resurrection. <clears throat> and so this is actually where we pick up in Acts chapter 17, verse 18. And we'll read a little bit. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. So in Acts chapter 17, verse 18, it says, He, Paul, also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, What is this babbler trying to say? with these strange ideas he's picked up. Others said he seems to be preaching about foreign gods. So they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them. So here's where we're going to pause for a moment before we talk about what Paul actually said. So Luke, who is the writer of Acts, that's where we get this story from, he, he's putting Paul on trial. But it doesn't, seem, it doesn't seem like there's actually a court in session. So on this passage, scholars, biblical scholars do not agree on the historicity of this narrative. So historicity means, did this actually happen the way it was written down? Some scholars say yes. Some scholars say no, we don't have a lot of evidence either way. It appears that Paul is standing before some kind of council. The NLT translation that we just read does not say which council or where the council was. Um, but in the Greek, it says that it's the council of the uh, Areopagus. The council of the Areopagus. Also, we, you may have heard this translated sometimes as Mars Hill, which would be a location. So it's kind of the high council, the high philosophical council of Athens. Now, What's interesting about this scene is that it's actually meant to invoke the, in, in the minds of the readers, the trial of Socrates. Now, Socrates, if you were reading this back then, this may very well pop into your mind. But for us, we're so far removed. Why would we think about the trial of Socrates? We wouldn't, right? So Paul is preaching in the marketplace, just like Socrates preached in the marketplace. People think he's introducing new gods. 
just like they thought that Socrates was introducing new gods with his philosophical ideas. Paul has taken and stands before the court, just as Socrates was taken and stands before the court. But Paul's appearance before this council results in like a kind of a polite inquiry. <laughs> it's, they basically say, you're saying some strange things and we would like to know more about it. Socrates' appearance before the same council ended in a death sentence um, for two reasons. One, they said he was corrupting the minds of the youth with his philosophical ideas. And the second reason was he did not believe in the state gods. Now remember, if you don't believe in the gods, in Paul's time, this would be the Roman gods. But if you don't believe in the state gods, that is a serious offense. So the polite question that Paul is being asked here by these philosophers seems to indicate that an actual trial, an actual legal investigation is not happening for Paul. But at the same time, the phrase, they took him and they brought him, that seems to imply that they, Paul didn't really have a choice in that matter. Like they, that was an external force. <laughs> they took him to the council. So it seems like that was against Paul's will. And we shouldn't forget in the back of our minds that Paul has just escaped from Berea and Thessalonica where people were actively trying to hurt him. So there's an element of danger in this whole conversation, which Paul does not shy away from at all. And we get the sense that when Paul speaks, he's talking, he may be talking to the council, but he's also seemingly talking to like all Athenians and through all Athenians, all Greeks and all Greek culture and all Greek religion, because he's speaking in very general terms. So with that in mind, we can kind of picture Paul before a panel, a council of philosophers. And what does Paul say? So here we can see what he says. And this is where we'll pick back up in Acts 17, 22. This is what he says. Men of Athens, I notice you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. One of your altars had this inscription on it, to the unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything and satisfies every need. From one man, he created all nations through the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far off from any one of us. For in God, we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. So Paul starts, men of Athens, because of course only men were allowed on the council. So here we can have a pause for a dramatic eye roll at history. So now that we have that out of the way, <laughs> he proceeds to keep talking to them. Men of Athens, he's seen their shrine to this unknown God. They're so concerned about missing, they have shrines all over the place, right? They have shrines to every God they could possibly think of, but in case they missed one, they have one to an unknown God. So he tells them that they have without even knowing it, been worshiping the God, the one true God, the God of Israel all along. And they didn't know it, but this God is the same as the unknown God. Now, Paul is introducing some strange ideas here. 
first. God doesn't live in man-made temples and humans can't serve God's needs because God has no needs. We tend to kind of accept that statement. We're like, all right, that seems to make sense. But that would have been very strange and new indeed to this culture who it was based around the idea of building temples, building shrines, building places where you sacrifice to the gods and on and on and on. Like they had cities named after gods. They had, I mean, festivals and all of these things to God. And here Paul is saying that this God doesn't live in a temple that you will build and you can't serve him because God has no needs. So that was completely new to them. Paul also states that this one true God decided in advance when all the nations and kingdoms of the world were going to rise and fall. A notion that would have been completely counter to the imperial cult of Rome, which was very committed to its own independence and dominance, etc. So they were very dependent on themselves, like, look what we have done. So for Paul to say that this was predetermined by the gods would have been somewhat upsetting for them to hear. And then he says, in God, we live and move and exist. Which sometimes we hear, we live and move and have our being, if you're reading a different translation. And then after that, Paul says, we are his offspring, which actually is a direct quote from a poem by Aratus, which is an invocation to Zeus, king of the gods in Greek culture. So Paul actually takes a quote out of a poem that was specifically applied to Zeus and applies it to the unknown god that the Athenians have been worshiping all along without knowing who that god was. It's so funny. (laughs) We never even think, like Paul is quoting... Paul is taking something that applies to Zeus and applying it to God in here. And this passage goes on after Paul's speech. Paul continues to speak for a little longer. And the writer lets us know that some of these people that he was talking to thought he was being completely ridiculous. They were like, get get this guy out of here. He is just babbling nonsense. But some of the people were intrigued and some of them actually believed, including a member of the council himself. And then at the end of the chapter, we can kind of breathe collective sigh of relief because the danger that Paul has been facing in this situation seems to be subsided. He is let go. He no longer is before the council. No one is no longer any longer taking him and making him talk about these things. What a crazy story all around. Paul is in two towns, gets run out of them, goes to another town, preaches in the town square, gets taken before the high council of the city, and then some of them think he's truly crazy, and some of them are like, no, I think that he's, what he's saying is true, and then he gets let go. This is like the stuff of video game side quests. If Paul was a game character here, (laughs) his speech and persuasion would have seriously leveled up because they let him go. But what is he saying? What is Paul saying? The phrase I want you to remember from Paul's speech today is that in God, we live and move and exist. And if you are used to reading a different translation, it may say we live and move and have our being. That phrase is a key reference in Christian thought, but we don't usually stop to think about the implications of it. We say, yep, in God, we live and move and exist. Got it. But if 
we live and move and exist in God, then there is no place where we can exist without God. There is no way that we can be apart from God. God is in us already, and we are in God already, and that is inescapable. And that phrase has inspired a lot of thinking, such as Paul Tillich's notion of God as the ground of all being. Um, Tillich is a modern philosopher. Um, Or we have Borg's panentheism, where the universe is not separate from God, but in God. And just a side note, panentheism is not the same as pantheism. They're very easy to get confused, but they're very different. Panentheism holds that the divine, God, pervades and penetrates every part of the universe and extends beyond space and time. So everything that we know and everything that is unknown, the divine pervades that and penetrates that. It's inside of all of that and it's so much far beyond that. Pantheism is the belief that reality is identical to God. So what we are experiencing right now is the same as God. That's not the same thing that Borg is purporting, which is that God permeates our very atmosphere. Christian belief would not say that reality is identical with divinity. Certainly not. We hold that there are very clear differences. But thinking about living and moving and existing in God, it it might actually change our understanding, perhaps, at least our recent understanding of what salvation is. Because a lot of times, especially in more evangelical churches, we tend to picture salvation as something that happens to us, as though we are being acted upon by an outside force. This external force is acting upon us and saving us. But perhaps if God pervades every aspect of known and unknown and every aspect of our lives and our universe... Salvation is actually the process of recognizing what has already inside of us and responding to the same divine God who is sustaining our very existence. So instead of salvation becoming something that takes us out of the world, like many Christian philosophies have promoted, we can recognize that we live in God's world to begin with that this is God's world, that we are God's people. And though there have been massive distortions and massive things that have gone wrong in this world, at the core, everything happens inside of God. And we live and move and exist and have our being inside of God. And so this is God's world after all, and we're not supposed to be saved from it. We're supposed to be saved in it. We come from God. And then we return to God. And in the meantime, we're called, commanded even, to live in the presence of God. So the world is real and significant because God is real and significant. If God were not real and significant, then the world would not exist. And accepting faith or starting on a journey of faith is the most real and significant thing that we could possibly do because it is a quest to understand and get closer to this infinite divine that upholds and sustains everything, 
this unknown God that has become infinitely knowable in Jesus. And it's actually really easy to take that step. It's as simple as saying, here I am, send me to God, to the divine. And then the God who has been sustaining your experience all along is delighted to be known by you. And so I think that's what Paul is saying here is this person, you've been running around worshiping all of these other gods. You've been running around building shrines and doing all of these things. But, but even when you were doing that, you've been worshiping the unknown God, the one true God, the one who has been enabling you to even begin the search. And so I know there was a lot of history and philosophy and talking and perhaps too many video game references. <laughs> Is there such a thing? No. But perhaps that will give you something to reflect on this week. How is the unknown God, our God, how do they intersect? How do they intertwine? How is the God that we have faith in or that we are exploring faith in the same as the one who upholds and sustains our very being? And so as we reflect on that, actually we're going to end with a very simple benediction as we embark on our next week and Hopefully we will be together in person again soon. But until then, I just invite you to rest in the unknown, the infinite unknown of the infinite unknown God who has become knowable to us through Jesus. Let's pray. Spirit of truth, you have always been trying to get our attention. Through the cries of prophets, whispers of saints, the groans of the earth you have been calling to us for ages, permeating all of life, always and everywhere available. You ask us to listen, to be still, to pay attention. Praise be to God who is felt in our longings, felt in connection, encountered in the flesh of creation. This unknown God who is infinitely knowable infinitely approachable and intimately involved with us. Amen. I hope you have a good week and we will see you next week, same time, same place for another Sunday edition of Different Church. Bye friends. <laughs>